Hi FM presents South African politics and news with the South African Institute of Race Relations. The IRR show, independent, relevant and real, is hosted by Sarah Gon every Tuesday morning from 9 to 10, promoting life, liberty and property rights. Good morning everybody and welcome to this morning's IRR show from the Institute of Race Relations. Despite the little dip in temperature we're experiencing today, and I think that's the fault of Cape Town, last night I heard the season's first frog. So spring may be upon us sooner rather than later, but uh, it was a brave frog that came out last night. The first thing I'd like to deal with is really just a reflection on something that Sir Ramaphosa raised in his letter from the President's desk yesterday uh, relating to Women's Day. And he talked about the fact that women still bear rural, uh, sorry, poor women still bear the brunt of having households that do not have fathers in them and that uh, said tragic phenomenon has consequences for child development, which I think is accepted worldwide that children, particularly boys, need their fathers to balance their upbringing and to have a level of discipline that is different to the way uh, mothers discipline their children by and large. He he gave some uh, quite interesting statistics in this regard. Um, He said, sorry, and I'll look for them, that something like between 70 54% and 92% of children live with their mothers across the four race groups. Now, the, the, tra- the there's a tragedy, and it's been repeated, or not repeated, it's, we have the similar situation in America, where the percentage of black women who, unwedded mothers, children growing up in female-headed households only, is in the region of of 74% or more. And this is singularly considered one of the biggest disasters in terms of the development of children and in every respect, their, their, their ability to learn, their place, their sense of their place in society, what is expected of them and, and, and what not. And it's a fundamental underlying social problem that appears in, in this country and affects everything about it. The problem is, is my sense is, and I may be wrong on this, that they never really get to grips with the, the causes of these issues. And the causes are, are multiple. I mean, they do have to do with poverty. They do have to do with the fact, probably, that a lot of men become fathers sort of casually, accidentally, too early, and they are not ready to take on the responsibilities of fatherhood, or they feel removed from it, they, they, they have no particular care for, for the child. And the, but you still have to question why the level is so high. What else is at play? And, and one of the issues that has come up, it's, as I say, by no means the only issue, but one of the issues that has come up is the fact that the requirement to pay labola to the family of the woman you wish, the, the man wishes to marry, is so onerous that very often the relationships become essentially what we used to call nowadays, I guess, illicit, but essentially unmarried relationships. And they may, as a result, never have the formality of marriage that 
I believe it's often necessary to form for, to to give a commitment to a relationship to really make it work. There are many many other issues, but that is one that I think has to be looked at in the mod in the modern era. The the pressures that are put on uh, that are put on men and women. And the, the fact that women end up carrying an undue responsibility for children, and usually at a young, young age. So it's it's an enormous problem to deal with, but it it does not seem to be de- being dealt with head on. Hi FM, your station of choice since 2008. Well, as you heard in the news at nine o'clock, Zuma trial is to be postponed. Again, wow! I mean, this is truly, truly impressive. You have to admit that. Now, as we know, Mr. Zuma, our former president or our once president, had a routine checkup the other day, which resulted in him being placed in a an external hospital. For obviously, we cannot know the reason because of doctor-patient confidentiality, and because he is. Unavailable, and he had applied to make sure that he has to, he can, he must attend in court, not virtually. He must be present in body and spirit and whatever in the court in order to for the trial to go ahead. He was granted that delay as a result of the delay for that application. So now he can't appear. He alleges in court, and so the. And so the trial must be delayed further. So what they're going to do is, but they are set up to have a virtual hearing, where Mr. Zuma's lawyers will represent him virtually, in other words, via Zoom or Skype or whatever it may be, to apply for the case to be postponed because, presumably, of his ill health. Now the case was going to start today. With an application, yet another application, very clever, very crafty, to have the lead prosecutor in the case, uh, Advocate Billy Downer SC, removed from the case because he is, I don't know what, prejudiced. Um, it, 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 it's, a, it's a lovely list of things. Um, you know, Billy Downer was involved from the very, very beginning, and that's the first part of the case. So what the judge has said is that the matter will be heard virtually. And what he will expect is a, an affidavit from a doctor explaining exactly what is wrong with Mr. Zuma and why it justifies not attending court until he is better. When it will be, set, will be a date will be set aside at a later stage, and the state will then have the right to rebut the evidence with uh, with a doctor on directly online. Or, under the under the uh, guidance of the state, um, and he's said that they will agree on the next date, which, date which, will, which shall be within a reasonably short period, depending on the availability of all concerned. So don't hold your breath on anything happening in August. Now the, the plea for having Billy Downer removed, um, he is arguing that Downer should be removed and the entire case should be dismissed. He's also arguing and challenging Downer's fitness to prosecute. The Zuma team argues that Downer has acted with bias against Zuma in the handling of the prosecution, citing the lengthy background of the court case, which has taken more than a decade to go to court. Now, two points strike me here. The first is that Downer is not meant to be nice to Zuma. He is the prosecutor, after all, and he does probably know more about Downer, Zuma than anyone else in the country at this stage. 
And a lengthy background of the court case of taking more than a decade. Well, whose fault is that? I mean, the number of delays Zuma has magically been able to conjure up has been absolutely extraordinary. Now, apparently, Billy Downer does not deny that the decisions not to charge Mr. Zuma originally were largely for political reasons. They weren't his decisions. In fact, he opposed them. They were the MPA heads who were first Bulalani in Muka and then Mokateri in Chair who withdrew the charges against Zuma for the most extraordinarily poor, unjustifiable reasons. So, let, so let's put it this way. The delays, the challenges, the fact that Billy Downer has had to essentially sit on his hands for a decade are all in the hands of Mr. Zuma. And if he really wanted his day in court, which he never did, but he, he said it to make himself sound like, you know, he was a committed, caring person who would subject himself to the rule of law in South Africa. Obviously, it was nonsense. It was nonsense then and is nonsense now. Zuma will do whatever he has to do, however ugly it is and however much of our money he wastes to avoid being subjected to the evidence that is going to come forward in this trial and may very well lead to his prosecution for the, for matters pertaining to the arms deal. Any other criminal activity he may have committed is subsequent to that, and that has, hasn't even been touched yet, other than his refusal to go to Zondo, which saw a very sharp, very committed decision by the Constitutional Court, which resulted in his current imprisonment, much to any, everyone's amazement. Um, the MPA is going to argue that Downer's conduct has not broken any prosecutorial rules and that Zuma is just using the special plea as a delaying tactic. Well, I think that we would pretty much agree with that. Um, Billy Downer explains in his answering affidavit and his view and that of the prosecution team has always been that Mr. Zuma should have been charged originally with Shabir Sheikh in 2003, how we're almost coming up to the 20th anniversary of that uh, of that court case, and the court case in which Billy Downer says he should have been prosecuted with him, but the decisions not to prosecute him and then to prosecute him, at all times the decisions to prosecute him were political decisions. There is no ba- no doubt about that, and. I don't know. I, and I'm sure you would agree with me as a, as a citizen of this country, feel that delays aside, it's absolutely, we, we are being, pardon the expression, but we are being and have been screwed by the man. IFM 101.9 megahertz of life. I'd like to introduce you to this week's guest. He is advocate. Mark Oppenheimer, and Mark had the interesting experience of representing one John Guelani. I don't know if you remember him from, he was a journalist for many years. Um, John recently died, but he got into a lot of trouble over an article he wrote in 2008, and it normally deals with the, with the facts pertaining to his view on homosexuality in general and gay marriage in particular. Welcome, Mark. Thanks for having me on. Good. 
Excellent. Mark, unique perspective of being arguing for a party. It was John Kalani versus South African Human Rights Commission and others. Um, what briefly what the factual and legal issues were at stake in the in the constitutional court? Yes, as you mentioned earlier, John wrote this article in 2008. The headline was uh, "Call Me Names, But Gay Is Not Okay," and it was accompanied by a cartoon of a man marrying a goat uh, and a priest saying, "I'll pronounce you man and goat." Uh, John had uh, no role in authoring the cartoon or the headline. Uh, the substance of the article really was uh, to express his disdain for gay marriage, where he said that, I hope politicians uh, have the balls to change those parts of the Constitution that allow a man to marry a man and ditto a woman. Now, I must bear in mind that uh, the article was from 2008, and only in 2006 uh, did South Africa... Um, except the right uh, of gay marriage. And there'd been much heated debate about this issue up until then, hearings in Parliament, um, people taking positions like it's immoral for gay people to get married or it's incomprehensible because the nature of the term necessarily means there must be one man, one woman. And so there'd been you know, a lot of discussion about the topic. Um, a complaint was then laid against uh, John for the article, and uh, a trial ensued in the Equality Court um, and that, that trial um, canvassed the enormous amount of evidence, and ultimately uh, John was held liable. He then uh, appealed on the basis that the legislation which he was held liable under, uh, namely the Equality Act, was unconstitutional. And so I appeared for him uh, at that juncture in the Supreme Court of Appeal and then later in the Constitutional Court. The Equality Act is the piece of legislation which governs hate speech, and mm-hmm. there'd been much ambiguity about what the act meant, um, given the way that it was drafted, and you had conflicting decisions coming out of different courts. One of the questions was whether hurtful speech amounts to hate speech, um, mm-hmm. and seeing whether that could um, suffice in terms of what the Constitution talks about. And the Constitution says that everyone's got a free speech right, uh, except for uh, the advocacy of hatred on one of four grounds, race, ethnicity, and religion, and that constitutes an incitement to cause harm. Uh, so whereas the Act talked about hurtful speech, the Constitution had this much higher threshold of incitement to harm. The Supreme Court of Appeal uh, agreed with Mr. Kulani and, and held that the Act was unconstitutional and substituted an interim test which largely mirrored the Constitution, but added in um, sexual orientation as a ground. And the argument was that uh, gay people have suffered enormous amounts of persecution in South Africa's history and still are a vulnerable group deserving of protection. Um, and so um, added that ground in. Uh, the Constitutional Court then became required to um, take note of the Supreme Court of Appeals' decision. It's, it is the only court that can ultimately decide whether legislation is unconstitutional or not. And the the court then had submissions from a large number of different parties, uh, but ultimately held that the section was unconstitutional. Mm-hmm. In what respect was it held to be unconstitutional? So the courts did a couple of things. The first was to say that hurtful speech, um, if you prohibit that, would be a, a very large infringement on the free speech mm-hmm. rights. And so that had to be removed from the legislation. Mm-hmm. The second was that there was this ambiguity about um, – whether the other two remaining parts, which would say um, harmful or incitement to harm, and then semicolon uh, promotes or or propagates hatred, how those sections should be read. 
Okay, so, sorry, can I just interrupt you there? Um, so essentially, it's a question of whether you have to read the, the both have to exist for for it to amount to hateful or harmful speech, or you can have the one, or you can have the other, and they then are harmful speech or hateful speech. Exactly. So okay. in other words, yeah. do you read them conjunctively with an and in between, or do you read mm-hmm. them disjunctively with an or in between? And so what other courts had done. Um, um, when that hurtful bit was still in there, was to say, well, hurtful speech is sufficient on its own. You can read everything else as an or. That case, someone called someone else a monkey, and the court said, look, it's not harmful speech, it's not uh, propagating hatred, but it is hurtful, and therefore we interpret this disjunctively, and therefore it is uh, hate speech. Um, mm-hmm. Another case in which I appeared as the matter of Kamala, um, some of you will remember the name Velapi Kamala, who had said, mm-hmm. We need to do to white people what Hitler did to the Jews. They should be hacked to death and burnt alive and their children turned into garden fertilizer. Um, I acted for the Human Rights Commission in that matter against Kamala, uh, and we argued that um, that you should read that test uh, in a manner that preserves free speech as far as possible, which is conjunctively, so that you insert ants. Mm-hmm. So it, it would have to be – it must incite harm and it propagates hatred. Um and uh, and the courts upheld that that understanding and found that that um, Mr. Kamala was liable for hate speech. Um, the SCA took the view that you couldn't read in these ands, um, and that the only way to read it um, was disjunctively, but that when you did that, it was unconstitutional. The Concord is sort of a mixed approach because what it did was to say let's let's cut out uh, hurtful, let's read mm-hmm. in an and, but there are still some ors floating around. So in other words. The speech must um, promote hatred, but mm-hmm. you could then either have speech that is in and of itself harmful or incites harm. And there's quite a difference between those two things. So incitement to harm means that you are calling on others to perform a harm against the group that you're targeting. Mm-hmm. Harmful speech itself means that it is the words themselves that cause a harm. And the court was mm-hmm. at pains to say that's different from hurt, which is temporary, a kind of emotional fluctuation, feeling angry or sad, Mm. uh, that harmful must be some kind of very deep and significant um, harm. It doesn't necessarily have to be of a physical nature, but we might think about a psychological harm like uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. It would have to reach that threshold to count. Um, So it raises the bar quite high. What I just wanted to ask you about about that, because uh, as I understand, one, there was um, one part who was arguing arguing on the, from a professional psychological point of view, and reference was made to uh, lesbians in the black community that often um, co- suffer corrective rape. In other words, uh, men rape them on the basis that somehow this will cure them of being of being lesbians. Now, the problem, the, 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 the interesting thing I found about uh, Kalani's case is that an article like this might have been, even though it was, it, it's been removed, but it, it, it might have been for, a, for the majority of people hurtful but not harmful, and for a minority of people um, harmful um, or even hate speech. How did the court, how did the court tend to deal with the, the fact that, you know, even though it's a minority, you're still lo- looking at a, a wide range of very different people and groupings. Yes, yeah, so one of the other parts of the test was to determine um, how do you look at the intent of the speaker and the effect of the speech. Um, and ultimately, there'd also been a very sort of strange, ambiguous phrase um, that had been used in legislation. And the court ultimately said, look, what you must use is an objective test. So you must sort of say, mm-hmm. would a a reasonable listener understand these words to be um, 
promoting hatred and that they are harmful. Um, so slash or inciting harm. Mm. Um, that doesn't mean, in other words, it's whatever the person happened to feel. In other mm, words, people mm. can say, well, I felt that this was harmful. Um, but that doesn't mean that it objectively is harmful. Um, mm. So they got to try to move away from that sort of subjective um, assessment of the words. Um, mm-hmm. One might recognize that certain communities are more vulnerable than others. Um, and that's partly what the Constitution tries to do with reference to those four different groups. Um, the other thing that the court had to consider was, you know, the equality legislation refers to 17 different groups. So belief, mm-hmm. conscience, um, disability, HIV status, pregnancy, marital status, those things are included. Um, the court has left them in for now in its own interim test, but it said that parliament really must engage in an exercise um, to determine whether those things should remain because each one of them obviously limits the free speech right. So what the court has done is to sort of declare the test unconstitutional, create a test for the next two years, but ultimately parliament is the body that must decide what the new test must be. And there are now guardrails that are set up by the court to establish you know, what would be permissible um, mm. for parliament to mm. decide. And we know that mm-hmm. Parliament can't just prohibit hurtful speech. Mm-hmm. So, you know, as I, as, yeah, as I understand it, the, the, against the Parliament must must sort this, uh, this this definition out, must take hurtful out, but in the meantime, you any case must regard harmful and hateful only. Am I am I correct? Have I misunderstood that? Yes, that's right. So, in other words, there, in other words, the court didn't want to create a lacuna where there's no prohibition mm-hmm. on hate speech. And so that's why there is an interim test. Um, and it, it sort of tried to, in some ways, strike a balance between the free speech right and the carve-out clause in Section 16. There is some sense of deviation from the carve-out clause because speech mm-hmm. that is harmful is not um, non-protected speech in terms of the Constitution. It's only speech that incites harm, and so that distinction is lost in the mm. judgment. Also, at the moment, the 17 categories are all given that protection as opposed to the four established by um, by the Constitution. So there is a difference mm. between the two. Um, some of that difference is explained in the court's judgment through a Section 36 analysis, which is we have a thing called the limitations clause, which mm. says that you, know, you can limit rights in the Bill of Rights provided that it is reasonable and justifiable in an open democratic country and that you must gauge in a kind of proportionality test. So you can you can limit the rights, you know, beyond the carve out in, in section sixteen, but uh you know you must explain why you're limiting the rights. That's really something I, I, I'm, I'm struggling to understand because the the provision in the constitution makes it quite quite narrow. In other words you have to have done something said something quite Severe for it to have met all the criteria that would have it regarded as hate speech uh, in, in order to limit, in order not, sorry, in order not to limit uh, free speech. Now, as I understand the, the, the Bill of Rights, it's the one area of the Constitution that allows Parliament to, to limit those rights uh, by, uh, through a law of general application. Now, this to me seems as if the law, this law, this piece of legislation, the Equality Act, Makes it makes it much wider. It doesn't limit. In fact, it expands what the uh, what the intention of the constitutional court is. If that's correct, uh, should it sort of remain un, sort of un, untested in its to its full extent till now? Yes. So so part of all this this is the test case. In other words, it's been clear, I think, to people for for the last twenty years that the Equality Act, as it stood, 
um, mm. was clearly very different from what the constitution envisaged and that there was reason to suspect that it was unconstitutional. Um, and now there is clarity on that because the constitutional court has said that that section of the, the act is unconstitutional. But for clarity's sake on how these things work, most rights just tell you what the nature of the right is. Free speech is different in that it says you've got these rights to free speech, which include artistic creativity and academic research, um, you know, freedom of the press. And then it says the following three things are not in that right. First is propaganda for war. Second is the incitement mm-hmm. of human violence. And the third is hate speech, as we've discussed it. Those three limitations are not prohibited by the Constitution. You're just told that what you have is an apple and there's a bite that's chunked out of it. And so when you're assessing mm-hmm. the right, you must look at the apple less the chunk. You can mm-hmm. then go through the limitations analysis with that apple. Um, and you can say, well, are there other reasons why we might want to deviate? Um, and the courts have said, well, you can deviate in the way that you can deviate with any other right, but provided you meet the limitations analysis test. So mm-hmm. it's not the case that you could, you cannot have any further restrictions on speech beyond the three that are mentioned in the constitution. Uh, those just telling mm-hmm. you those things aren't part of the right and that further limitations uh-huh. okay. in the right are permissible. That's the, that's the understanding. Uh, okay. Okay. Um, I, I wanted to just ask you about, um, John Kalani himself because he died fairly recently. Um, what, what is, what is the impact of the, of the judgment? Is it in any way affected by his death? And, in, the, in this case, costs were awarded against him, not there to pay the cost. So where does it leave the cost issue? Yes, so costs were awarded both against him and in his favor. So there were two elements in the case. Uh, the first element is what we've discussed thus far, which is his challenge to the legislation, and he was successful in finding it unconstitutional. The second question was, is it nonetheless the case that the article amounts to hate speech? And the court found that it did. Um, and mm-hmm. on that basis awarded costs to the Human Rights Commission. But it awarded John costs against the Minister of Justice because that's the ministry that um, has the costs. Mm-hmm. You asked about what the effect is of John's death. Um, we did do further submissions on that question. There was a debate as to, you know, what, what can be done given his death. And we all agreed the constitutional challenge is un- unaffected entirely. Um, mm-hmm. um, in other words, whether John was alive or not, the, that question must be determined by the court. Um, it doesn't hinge on John. There were arguments uh, about what effect it could have on determining whether he was liable, given that the, the original relief was that he should apologize. Um, and uh, it was hinted by one of the parties that one way to give effect to that would be uh, if his family apologized on his behalf. Uh, the, mm-hmm. the court ultimately held uh, that it would be impossible for him to apologize. Um, but it it granted this declaratory relief where it said, look, we declare the article hate speech. And part of the reason is really to send a signal um, mm. to the gay community that um, their dignity matters and that, um, you know, that they're an important community. Uh, I mean, I do think that, unfortunately, one of the, the real things you mentioned as a concern is this notion of corrective rape. And the original trial um, sort of dealt with in quite a lot of detail really the wrongs the gay community have suffered at the hands mm-hmm. of the police um, and their failure to investigate things like corrective rape um, and the sort mm-hmm. of bias which they were treated. And I think it's unfortunate that that bit, which you can do something about and ought to do something about, really wasn't focused on and that John was sort of the target um, mm-hmm. of, of the attack. John at no point, by the way, called for any harm to be um, perpetrated mm-hmm. against any member of the gay community. And his concern really was with gay marriage, um, mm-hmm. not with gay people. Um, 
Now, so ultimately, as I say, what you have is the sense of, um, I think all sides proclaiming a victory. So, um, you know, uh, Kualani, I think, can, can very clearly say victorious because we declared mm. section unconstitutional and it's been a section that's been around for 20 years mm-hmm. and much ambiguity mm-hmm. on it. If you read, for example, the statement made by Bowman's, who represented the Human Rights Commission, uh, they say we were victorious for our clients. And they were in the sense that they, they obtained uh, an order saying that the article was, was hate speech. Most of their press release talks about the, the constitutionality, which they resisted. Um, the Human Rights Commission wanted to say, no, the act's perfectly constitutional, and many of the parties wanted to try and say it was perfectly constitutional. Um, and uh, it was, you know, I appeared in that case with Douglas Ainsley. Um, it was, I think there were about 27 counsel in that case, um, and, and most counsel were not on the free speech wagon. Um, we were a minority. Um, Freedom of Expression mm. Institute and you know, Monitoring Africa came out to say that um, they wanted to protect free speech, but all the other parties, um, you know, took the uh, anti-free speech line, shall we say? Um, mm. And so it was a it was a hard fought battle, but as I say, we were uh, victorious on something that'll have a very large impact for many years to come. I just wanted to ask with regard to the suggestion that uh, his family apologise in light in, in light of his 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 death on his behalf. Should he? I mean, the the case is for and against him, only him, and it's not a matter. It's not for his family to be ordered to apologise for for anything he did. Yes, exactly. I think you know the the view is that these things are personal in nature. Mm. Um, that um, only the person who you know. Um, performs the wrong as the person who can apologize and that you can't transfer that to anyone else. And the court ultimately agreed with our submission on that. Uh, okay, good. Um, just perhaps a, a, a rising out of this, not, not, a, not a legal issue, but just an issue out of the complexity in South Africa, which is largely a conservative society and, 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 a, and a deeply Christian one. So in, in, certainly in 2008, um, although one may regard what uh, – uh, what John said is possibly as, as, as intolerant and uh, somewhat homophobic. It's actually a, 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 a belief that is shared by a very, very wide swathe of South African society. Um, so, although it, it, it might have uh, it might have been successful in being, in being declared um, hateful speech, uh, it's it's not something from a societal point of view that may necessarily get the resonance it would. Yes, there's this interesting tension about what the, the role is of these kinds of judgments. Um, mm. So there's a there's an earlier case called LaRue versus Day where the Constitutional Court had to consider whether it was defamatory to call someone gay. Um, mm-hmm. And the, the test there is would a right-thinking person think less of you having heard the statement? And the court said it may very well be the case that the average person will think less of you if they hear that you're gay. But a right thinker mm-hmm. doesn't think that. A right thinker believes that um, there's nothing wrong with being gay and found it was not defamatory. So there was some kind of normative pull with that. And I think that is part mm-hmm. of the purpose of this judgment on the issue of gay rights is to say that, you know, uh, gay people deserve the full protection of the law um, mm-hmm. and that their dignity ought not to be sullied and they should not be attacked. Um, you know, and I think there's much virtue in that, mm-hmm. uh, in that approach. Mm-hmm. Um, so, there's another concern which you raise, yeah. which is, Will you end up stifling the speech of people who hold very, um, you know, robust religious views on this question? One of the things that mm. I did in court was to say, when this court comes up with a test for what constitutes hate speech, 
it must recognize which speech we currently tolerate. And to tolerate mm-hmm. speech does not mean that you endorse it or that you like it. It actually means that you don't like it, but that mm. you think that it it shouldn't be illegal. Um, mm. Now, I gave the example of uh, Leviticus 20, which says something along the lines of um, uh, homosexuals have done something detestable um, and that they are deserving of death and that um, their death shall be upon them. It is their fault for their own death when they are, mm. when they are put to death. Um, now, I said that statement goes far beyond anything that Mr. Kolani had said. But it is, you know, from a book that is very widely available in South Africa and from a book that is cherished by many South Africans. Uh, I re- mentioned a sort of similar section from the New Testament uh, as well. Now, there mm-hmm. is a concern that this judgment may then prohibit this, the, the, the speech. The, the judgment doesn't deal with that question square on. Mm-hmm. It makes no mention mm-hmm. of, of Leviticus. Um, but it is a question. In other words, Imagine this view, if given, given that we know that belief is still a protected category in terms of constitutional test. If someone said, anyone who believes um, that homosexuality is a sin is an ignoramus, uh, is a, uh, you know, a despicable person, uh, mm. and we should remove, um, you know, their rights as far as we can, and we should, we should punish them with the full force of the law. Okay. Let's say you said a statement mm. like that. Mm. On the new test, the argument is you've performed an act of hate speech. You've called mm. for a harm. Um, you've said that the law should be changed, which is what John had called for. Um, and you have described the group of believers uh, uh, in a hateful manner. Um, and so this is the concern. In other words, the very people that you think might want to say things like that suddenly can't say it. Um, mm. And, you know, the court does highlight that belief as a protected category could cause these kinds of problems, but keeps it in for now. Mm, mm, I can understand why. I mean, it's it's a, it's really being caught between a rock and a hard place, uh, from if, if, particularly for our society. Uh, Mark, I'd like to thank you very, very much for joining us and helping to put in in place a really clear expose of a of a important societal issue that has been dealt with the constitutional court, and we don't, as you say, often get opportunities to reach the point where where, where matters are. are decisively decided one way or the other on certain issues, and in this case, certainly in regard to Section 10 of the Equality Act, it appears to have done so. So thank you very much for coming on, and uh, much appreciated. Absolute pleasure. IFM, 101.9 megahertz of life. The DA has, is asking a question that possibly the rest of us want would like to ask, particularly given the amount of money we're wasting on Jacob Zuma, and they want proof that Deputy President David Mabusa paid for his stay in Russia. Now, as you remember, he's recently returned from a month-long stay in Russia to have his health for the umpteenth time sorted out. Of course, we can't know what the health problem is at this stage because, again, it's a doctor-patient confidentiality thing. But the, D, the DA wants details of the medical condition as much to determine whether he had to go to Russia and, and incur any expenditure at all and whether the expenditure he incurred was paid for by him or by, for the government. I'm prepared to take a reasonably large 20 rand bet that he didn't pay for his medical costs overseas in Russia. But um, we'll see what comes from that. should be fun to find out. Now, the, the really disturbing 
news of late last week was that one of the, um, what do you call it, uh, generators, I think there's six generators at the Madupi power plant, and the Madupi power plant has just been declared completed and paid for, paid for by three or four times more than it was originally meant to cost. And one of the uh, units at, I think unit four at Madupi experienced an explosion on Sunday night. Now, the explosion um, seems to have occurred, as they describe it, the incident occurred during the activity to displace hydrogen with carbon dioxide and air, respectively, for the purposes of finding an external leak. It appears that while performing this activity, air was introduced to the generator at a point where hydrogen was still present in the generator at sufficient quantities to create an explosion explosive mixture. The mixture ignited and resulted in the explosion. Fortunately, nobody was injured or killed. But it appears that there was a deviation from this procedure in carrying out this activity. And as such, those employees who were responsible to manage and execute this work under precautionary suspension are under precautionary suspension pending the conclusion of what they call the major event investigation. Hi FM, your station of choice since 2008. I just wanted to note a comment about this explosion of this unit at Madupi from Anton Eberhardt. Now, Anton Eberhardt is an energy policy and investment specialist and advisor, and he's Professor Emeritus and Senior Scholar, Power Future Labs, GSB, University of Cape Town. So, eminently qualified, knowledgeable man says the following on Twitter. What a disaster for ESCOM SA. It will take a couple of years, a couple of years, and many billions to fix this. 797 megawatts are off the system at a time when there is very little reserve margin. Um, don't you get the feeling that for every one step forward, we take two steps back with ESCOM and... Uh, Madupi and uh, and so on and so forth. So don't uh, get rid of your candles and torches any time soon. Right, a, a, a little piece that has a sort of fun element, and that is that SACTRU, the South African Clothing and Textile Workers Union, is dragging Dr. Iqbal Serval, Iqbal Survey to court for independent media millions. Um, now, basically what has happened is that the union, which has been a long-standing ally, God knows why, has the union has lent him workers' money to help take over independent media. So it wasn't just the Public Investment Corporation. The Sacru Investment Company is demanding 300 million back, and Survey is saying that the company doesn't owe it. Um, now. You know, there are a number of questions one would ask. One, of course, is why the hell South African Clothing and Textile Workers Union would um, loan that sort of money to somebody like Dr. Iqbal Survey. It's also the union that lent, what was it, 87 million rand, and I think we've estimated now would be worth 200 million rand in 2010 
to our new fi- Minister of Finance, uh, Enoch Gordon-Guana, which loan he said he didn't realize had come from the union. This coming from a man who has spent his entire life involved in unions and union affairs and Kosatu, which just, just beggars belief. But Pearl Satru also has another uh, unattractive, unavoidable, horrible piece of history attached to our Minister of Trade, Industry and Competition, Ibrahim uh, Patel, who was, I think, the General Secretary at the time when Satru virtually collapsed. And why it collapsed was because because Patel, out of his socialist conviction, decided that the... Workers in the, I think it was the Newcastle area, were not to be paid sort of sub-industry, sub-industry level wages by Chinese uh, manufacturing clothing concerns because that would be unjust. So, end result, the companies closed and went somewhere else and people lost their jobs. So, the members of SACRU have had to put up with quite a lot, and uh, if I were them, I don't think I would take it for a minute longer if I had the choice. So that's our wrap for this morning. Um, South African politics uh, tumbles on in a myriad of different and exciting and annoying ways as usual, and I'm sure I will be back next Tuesday to cover some more of them. Please enjoy your week, and... Welcome, I'll welcome you back next week, Tuesday at 9. In the meantime, please read the dailyfriend.co.za for our opinions, our podcasts, and our videos, which are uh, illuminating and usually fun at the same time. See you then.